I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk about the verdict that was rendered this week in Minnesota in the Derek Chauvin trial. And also we're going to talk about Earth Day as everybody around the world celebrated it this last Thursday. Later on in the pod, we've got some special guests with us. China Dickerson, who's been with the pod before, is the National Political Director for the political organization Forward Majority, and Dr. Jen Valavicencio, who is a Cuban-American physician out of Florida, and she's going to be talking about women's health. So stay tuned. China and Dr. Jen are absolutely fabulous. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things going in your world? What a week, huh? It has been a week. I uh, definitely traumatized my children when the verdict was rendered and I just started hollering from the closet uh, where I was working and (laughs) Josh came running in. He was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And nothing was wrong. For the first time, we had to step in the right direction. Mm, Yeah. I mean, what, what were your expectations before the verdict was rendered? They weren't good. Um, They were not good at all. My stomach was hurting. And when we found out um, earlier in the afternoon that they'd reached the verdict and they were going to be telling us between, I think, 3.30 and 4 Central, our time, I I don't think I had really prepared myself and I was I was really surprised by like how sweaty my hands got and like my stomach sort of started hurting and I just... I honestly was thinking about what I was going to wear into the March because I knew we were about to start having to go again and not, not that we're not going to March, but, um, and so, yeah, my expectations were really low. What about you? You know, I've, I've talked to several of my colleagues, uh, both white colleagues and black colleagues, as well as Brown colleagues about this. And, you know, I, I watched the trial like uh, everybody else did, or at least kept up uh, with the news reports from the trial, and it seemed as though the evidence was so overwhelming on this officer. I mean, to have your knee on someone's neck for over nine minutes and remain in that position, even when uh, George Floyd um, was unconscious, is just unfathomable. So, it, I mean, it just really did seem like the evidence was overwhelming. On the other hand, History has taught me to be very cautious and really not optimistic about outcomes such as we saw unfold over the week. And so I was really apprehensive. I didn't really know what to think. Um, You know, again, just from my perspective and my analysis, yes, three guilty verdicts seem to be appropriate. But we have seen time and time again that that has not always been the case. And so uh, when the verdict was rendered, it was really a sigh of relief. I can uh, tell you that I, I texted several of my black colleagues uh, across the country with the simple phrase, thank God. Mm-hmm. And all of them responded uh, in the affirmative. It just uh, was really a, a, a relief. And the imagery that we painted, and in fact, uh, after the verdict, uh, Many of you are aware that Reverend Starlet Thomas, who is director of the Raceless Gospel Initiative that we're trying to launch here at Good Faith Media, she and I went on Facebook Live and had about a 30-minute conversation about the verdict. And the imagery that both of us discussed was having Chauvin's knee on the neck of George Floyd was white supremacy on the neck of African-Americans for over 400 years. 
And this verdict, while it's only a step, mind you, it hasn't changed everything, but it's a step forward, seemed to be a grasp of fresh air, which could be interpreted as justice for the African-American community. So I, it was, I, was, I, was, I was scared. I was apprehensive that the outcome was going to be different than it was, but I was really relieved when I heard the verdict rendered on uh, this past week. He looked surprised to me. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I can't imagine that his lawyer did not prepare him for that um, because the evidence was so overwhelming and there really was not a good defense that they put forward. They couldn't cite any examples where this type of behavior was appropriate. Even the blue wall of silence began to fall with the chief of police testifying and other police officers testifying say, no, this is not what we do in our training. This was inappropriate. So, I mean, I would be surprised if he was surprised, but nonetheless, he certainly could have been. I have just a quick question. What do you think about the fact that that blue wall didn't crumble while it was happening in time to save George Floyd, that the blue wall didn't crumble until really just the very last possible minute. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a lot of uh, police officers uh, in my family, uh, in the congregations that I have uh, pastored over the years and just in the, the, that I know through community activity at large. And it certainly is a brotherhood uh, and sisterhood, um, as, as we all know. And when you put your life on the line each and every day, I can see how that solidarity begins to form, uh, solidified in the vocation of being a police officer. At the same time, there is a greater brotherhood that each of these police officers are a part of. And that is the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. Mm -hmm. And it becomes really easy, or it becomes, it can become really easy to dehumanize the people you are in charge of protecting when you begin to see them as the enemy or see mm -hmm. them as the other. Mm -hmm. And so this blue wall of silence that we often talk about seems to be an, a, a conscience, a subconscious attempt, and I think it's both, to put a divider between police and the community. And I've talked to several police officers about this, and the, the, the thing that policing needs to address is how to break down that wall, not only the blue wall of silence, but the wall itself between policing and the communities that they serve. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that we've discovered throughout this uh, conversation over the last year has been how many police officers do not live in the communities that they are policing. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen and you go into a neighborhood that you don't know anybody, you don't show, shop at their grocery stores, you don't go to their uh, barbers and hair salons, you don't know them and they mm -hmm. are the other. And so it's yeah. very easy to, to dehumanize them and see them as objects that you can put your knee on the neck of somebody for over nine minutes or shoot them, uh, yeah. you know, with really at, without justification. So there, there needs to be policing reform. Mm -hmm. And part of that is trying to crack this wall, uh, not only the blue wall of silence, but the blue wall of separation between police and communities. But yeah, yeah, it was interesting to see how uh, it did begin to crack at the end and not at the beginning. Uh, we see from the very beginning with the release of the police report that uh, they intended to cover this up. It was mm -hmm. interpreted in their eyes as someone who just died while I was in their custody. Uh, nothing directly related to, to Chauvin's knee on the neck. Um, and it's just, it, it is, it's just, they try to protect their, what we would define as their own. And they, they can't, they cannot keep doing that. They've got to see policing as part of the community and not separate from the community. Right. And I, I have a lot of empathy for 
police officers. I really do. It's it's a tough job. You are seeing a lot of trauma all the time. You you don't call the police because someone's having cupcakes at the birthday party. Like it's hard. And I I recognize that. And what we need to have is I know there are wonderful police officers. I've met them, but we have to equip them and train them to be able to stand up for what's not right so that you're not guilty by association. Because if you're silent on these matters, if you're covering things up, even if you and your heart don't think you're doing anything wrong, you're complicit and you're part of the problem. And I've seen a lot of things in my timeline because I do try to keep my social media pretty balanced. Um, of people, you know, this day the verdict came out and they're like, I support police. And I'm like, it's not either or, you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive. But if you really support police, then we need to be really advocating for them to have what they need to be effective, but also fair. Yeah, absolutely. That's very, very well said. So at the end of the day, Derek Chauvin is going to be going away for quite some time. It was quite the image to see him handcuffed and led mm-hmm. off uh, into custody. Uh, he is now in seclusion uh, at a municipal jail there in Minnesota. So we'll, his sentencing is eight weeks away, so we'll see what comes of that uh, in eight weeks. So another event this week was Earth Day. And at uh, Good Faith Media, we've been running a series of articles all week uh, talking about the importance of ecological justice as well as climate care uh, coming from our faith. And it's been a really great series, so we encourage you to check it out at goodfaithmedia.org. So, Autumn, uh, this uh, Earth Day was uh, Thursday, but we really celebrated all week at Good Faith Media Earth Week. What yeah. did you and your family do uh, to, to get outside and uh, enjoy this creation of ours? Well, it's been a little cold in Oklahoma. We've definitely been spending some time in our yard. We've been planting things and, you know, the the freezes and, and snows that came through were pretty hard. We lost some trees. Uh, so we planted some more, which feels good. But we really try to celebrate Earth Day every day in our house. Um, it's sort of like you keep Christmas in your heart, keep Earth Day in your heart. We recycle. We've trained our children to recycle. We really watch our water intake and things, water, you know, over usage, things like that. I think training up the next generation to really care for the environment and to be responsible with their choices is, is one way that we do that at our house. And, you know, with the continued change in our climate, with uh, the warming of the oceans due to global temperature rises, um, the shrinking of the ice sheets, the glacier retreats all across the world, decreased snow cover, sea levels rising, declining Arctic sea ice, extreme events continue to be on the the rise. And here in Oklahoma, you and I are, are, are facing this week, in fact, uh, this very night on Friday, uh, there's going to be storms moving through. And so we're, mm-hmm. we're really scared that uh, about tornadoes uh, emerging from the sky again. There's just all kinds of things that give evidence to the difficulty of climate change and the, the ramifications that it is causing. And so as people of faith, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to be caretakers of God's creation and do everything we can to make certain uh, that it is sustainable uh, because if it's not, then we're not. Right. We've only got one world. I've been reading this wonderful, wonderful book by Robin Wall uh, Kimmerer, who uh, the title of it is Braiding Sweetgrass. And she is a biologist, uh, Native American descent. And she's been talking in this book about just really the symbiotic um, uh, relationship that humanity has with the earth and talking about her ancestors and her Native American roots uh, who come from the Potawatomi um, uh, tribe uh, here in Oklahoma. But just talking about how in school, when she grew up, they started the day not with a prayer, not with the Pledge of Allegiance, but as a Native culture on sovereign land, they started it with a moment of thanksgiving, thanking Mother Earth for all that she has provided them, from the, the soil to the plants to the water to the birds uh, to the animals that feed them. They just started their day every day listing everything that Mother Earth has given them 
uh, and, and it was just it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, chapter where she speaks about this. And she said, "What if? What just what if? With all due respect to all of our other traditions, what if we started to thank the earth for everything it provides us in a genuine and authentic way, looking at the earth as a mother feeds her child? Would then we fall in love with the earth?" and then be inspired to care for it. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And I, I wish that we would. And I, you know, I, um, I grew up in, in a sort of a situation where Earth Day and recycling and those kind of things were sort of against religion like they does that make sense like it was almost countercultural. like oh these people just worship they worship the creation and not the creator mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think coming to a point where we, I heard um, God's word through different perspectives really gave me an understanding that that's not, I mean, God created the earth. So in caring and loving the earth, we are caring and loving for him and caring for others who come after us. So just want to give a quick shout out to anyone who may have grown up in that world that um, it's it's a tricky place to to consider, really. It really is. And, you know, in, in taking that kind of mentality, what I would say uh, to combat that type of thinking is that creation is the very extension of God. It is his, mm-hmm. you know, you read the scriptures and that beautiful imagery of God speaking this world and universe into existence. It is by his very breath that things are created. Therefore, part of God lives within his creation. Also, I got news for you, we are created beings as well. <laughs> And mm-hmm. so when yeah. Jesus is asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, love God's creation as, as you would love yourself. Mm-hmm. Love, those two are intertwined. The divine and the human are intertwined. Mm-hmm. And it's all encapsulated in this idea of creation. And so a lot of important uh, theology that we can unpack there. But uh, it's been a good Earth Week. Uh, We want to encourage everybody to go to goodfaithmedia.org, read all the excellent articles that have been written this week. It really has been a good week for us. Well, stay tuned. Autumn and I are going to sit down with China Dickerson and Dr. Jen Vallevicencio, and we're going to talk about the importance of women's health. So stay tuned. Discovering Wholeness is a new podcast from Good Faith Media for healing trauma, for unearthing self. Because trauma is so pervasive in our communities, it comes into our spiritual spaces, our churches. Mm. And I'm wondering how trauma is expressed in religious communities. My experience of of sitting in the the pain, the shame, and the terror at times with some of the people that I have um, sat with that have experienced that judgment, but to the degree of those kinds of really strong words like abomination and you're going to hell. And it's so heart-wrenching. I'm Kendall Rothis, an author, feminist theologian, ordained minister, and spiritual director. Join me and my colleagues, Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader, as we gather each week to discuss trauma and spirituality, to stay grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. Join us and learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got two very special guests with us today as we are looking at National Women's Health Week arriving in a few days. We've got a return guest to the pod, China Dickerson. China is the National Political Director uh, for the political organization Forward Majority. Originally from Charleston, South Carolina, China has almost two decades of experience working in the areas of political campaigns, community development, and the federal government. She began her career 
career as a high school student working in her congressman's district's office. She later moved to Washington, D.C. to attend Howard University School of Law. And as I said a moment ago, she has been a guest on Good Faith Weekly before. Dr. Jen Vicencio is Cuban-American who grew up in Miami, Florida. She completed her Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience at the University of Michigan and went on to receive her medical degree as a member of the charter class of the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. She completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Brown University Women and Infants Hospital, where she developed a passion for family planning. She graduated from her fellowship in family planning at the University of Michigan in June of 2019 and has completed a master's in public policy at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy in May of 2020. Her interests include bridging the gaps between public and health policymaking and the clinical world, reproductive justice advocacy, and effective messaging for social change in abortion. China, Jen, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch and Autumn. We are so glad you're us here. Yes. So Dr. B. Vicencio, as a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist and pub public policy expert, what message do you have for women right now? So I, I have one that I think is both uplifting, but also one that is a call to action. Um, mm -hmm. People who are able to get pregnant, um, as well as people who are wanting to make decisions about their body and about their family, their ability to do that is being threatened, unfortunately. And this is a um, right and a desire of individuals all across this country, including individuals of faith. Um, as someone who was brought up Catholic um, in a Cuban community, I know very well that social justice is an incredibly important part of a lot of people's faiths. And so I really want to bring um, the message to the members of your community of this um, podcast that this is an issue that really impacts everybody, your neighbors, your families, your children, um, and is something that everyone, regardless of whether they're um, of a faith tradition or not, should really be engaged in because our ability to make these decisions is being threatened by our government currently. Now, Jen, you mentioned, you mentioned advocacy, and I think that is so important. Now, our listeners are sitting there, you know, listening to you as the expert on these policy, as well as, you know, being a medical doctor yourself. Um, what can they do? What, what can people do who are sitting in their pews, sitting in their congregations uh, all across America? What can they do to advocate for, uh, for women's health and reproductive health? I really appreciate that question. I think um, sometimes people don't understand why a doctor like myself who takes care of patients and has a full-time job doing that would be in the advocacy or policy space. And the reason that I am is because, actually, I explained this to my mom the other day, who was also confused by it, um, <laughs> told her that it's exhausting to work in a broken system. Mm. And so I'm going to spend my time working in that system, but then also use that exhaustion in order to try to fix the broken system. And so my, my message to your listeners would be that talking to your family and friends about these issues listening to the news, not seeing the word abortion and just um, kind of like flipping past the page, really kind of engaging that and understanding that these issues are part and parcel of everyone's lives and really trying to um, acknowledge that it's not a pro-choice or pro-life debate, a Republican or a Democrat debate. It's an American conversation. Um, and I would really love for them if they have the wherewithal or the ability to start calling their local representatives, to start calling the people who are running their city councils, start calling their state senators, start calling their Congress people in Washington, DC. Seven out of 10 Americans, including those who are of faith traditions, support the right to have abortion, support the right for contraception. And, but for some reason, our politicians aren't acknowledging that. And so the more we can raise our voices, I think the more powerful our opinions and our, our values will be. Good word. Now, China, you are our public policy expert who lives in our nation's capital. So we're just going to flat out ask you, what's going on right now at the Capitol uh, regarding reproductive health? Uh, nothing. <laughs> um, I, I just, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think currently, but here's the thing, currently we are fighting, I think, um, or I know there and in state legislatures, voting rights. We are fighting for voting rights. Here's the thing, um, these are not mutually exclusive. Reproductive freedom um, and your right to vote is not uh, mutually exclusive. And so while I say um, they aren't doing anything specifically 
as it relates to bodily autonomy. Maybe actually they are um, because your right to vote um, in an environment that is not hostile, um, in an environment um, that sees you as a human being actually is very intimately tied to reproductive freedom. Um, I think what's happening with voting rights, and that's not this conversation, but it's it's definitely something, as the doctor said, you exercising um, your rights, um, should you believe you have them, you exercising your rights um, to reach out to your state legislatures or your congressional members, your mayor, whoever, um, about your freedom to vote is, is particularly of issue right now. Um, and you need to know that even though we just had an election in 2020, you still have the ability to reach out to those folks that you voted for, whether they be Democratic or Republican, and let them know that as a human being in this country, you have the right to vote as much as you have the right to reproductive freedom. China, that is such an important point, and thank you so much for making it. I mean, all across the country, uh, from Georgia to uh, the Dakotas, we are seeing legislation uh, passed by state legislatures that are restricting voting rights. And it's not mutually exclusive. You're 100% right. So let me ask you this, because it seems as though a lot of these states have now been uh, energized because of the flip of the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Bryant coming on, uh, taking uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's place on the Supreme Court. It's, it's flipped now. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to push to bring Roe v. Wade back to the court in hopes that it's overturned. So in these particular states that uh, are trying to, to, to accomplish that, what can people do from a public policy standpoint to to support reproductive health and women's rights? I think it, so I am of the belief that um, adjusting the culture, adjusting what you believe in your home, having conversations, as we say, go get your people, <laughs> having mm-hmm. conversations with your partner, among your friends, um, because I think people are more likely to um, understand if they're talking to someone they can relate to. People don't want to hear what, though I love Chris Cuomo and Rachel Maddow and, you know, folks on the, people listen to them, but it's really like for this entertainment sort of confirmation purpose, right? It is, I think, your friends or your family members, you all should talk to each other, um, especially if you have someone, I apologize for the outside noise, especially if you have someone within your family who appears to be a little more with it on these issues, them talking to you about what's going on and then saying, hey, here's what I encourage you to do, I think is the way around this. As I said before, and the doctor said, reach out to your elected officials and let them know your position on it. But I think a lot of this first requires some culture shifting. And I think it's the easiest to do that I was actually just, and, and I'll wrap up this because I can be long-winded. <laughs> I was looking at a podcast that had um, Carl Lentz on it, um, and he was talking about racism within the church and outside of the church. And he said, one of the ways that we help people to be anti-racist, I first have to start where I have influence, which is within the church, mm-hmm. right? So again, I think you talking to people who relate to you is the quickest way to bring about change. Now, see, China, you just went from advocating to meddling because now you're forcing me to talk to have these uncomfortable conversations <laughs> with family members and church members. But yeah. I'm going to follow because those are wise words. Thanks. I really mean it. Thanks. <laughs> if I can jump in just really quick, I really appreciate that conversation about talking to your family members. And I know I brought that up and China just um, completely beautifully um described why that is. And I just wanted to quickly tell a kind of a personal story about my journey with my own family, because I know that when people hear talk politics with your family at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, it becomes almost like a panic attack, um, particularly in this very polarized state. And um, I originally went to medical school and I thought that I was going to be a doctor who operated on people who had cancer. And now I have become a doctor who delivers babies, prescribes contraception, but then also does abortions. And so that was really tough for my very Catholic family to understand. And um, at first I was angry about it and we didn't talk about it. And then I realized that if I could start connecting my values that they taught me and instilled in me, that my mom gave to me with the values that she still had, we would get somewhere. 
And ultimately, by talking about mothers, by talking about family, by talking about justice and the hard work that she instilled in me, I got to a place with her where she is entirely supportive of what I do. She has discussed with me her own complex reproductive history that includes a devastating miscarriage that gave her complex feelings about ending a pregnancy. Um, and she now prays for me when I go to work and not in a, like you're going to hell way prayer, but in a, um, I, you know, I hope you and your patients are safe and have a good day. And so these conversations are possible, even at, when you're in a place where they feel like they're not, if you approach them in a values sharing way. Um, and so I just wanted to share that because I think that it's, um, it's hard and it's scary, but it's definitely possible. That is beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that really like tender and personal story. And I think you're absolutely right. Whether it's, you know, reproductive rights or racism or whatever hot button issue it is, when you can put a face um, with, it's not just an issue, it becomes a human element. And I, and I really, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so National Women's Health Week is days away, May 9th through the 15th. One of the most important issues within women's health is, as we talked about, reproductive health. So what is happening in the world? Are there groundbreaking achievements that are emerging in reproductive health? And sidebar, where are we with male birth control? That's my personal question. <laughs> hey, 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 now wait. I feel, I feel a little personally attacked here. <laughs> It's also, um, I think it started, was it, what is today? Tuesday, Sunday, Black Maternal. Oh, yes. nice. Yes. 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 But, but doctor, you can go ahead because I know as the groundbreaking stuff, you probably know more than me. So there's a lot going on. I think one of the things that I want to reiterate is that what we already know about birth control and contraception and reproductive health as um, we, we talk about it. We, the science is there. It's been settled, right? Contraception is super safe. Abortion is super safe. Um, the FDA just, uh, again, last night, this is breaking news, lifted the in-person requirement for um, mifepristone. So they had lifted it um, by the courts um, when ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, sued the FDA because they wanted um, to prevent patients and, and doctors risking their lives to with COVID to go and get this pill that's extremely safe. Supreme Court overturned that just last night. They were able to wow. reinstate the lifting on that. So we'll be able to mail a very safe pill, pills that are safer than the Tylenol or Advil that you get in the pharmacy so that people can end their pregnancies at home with the appropriate counseling and, and supervision. And so there's a lot of really interesting policy stuff happening, but I just want to reiterate the science is settled. We don't need any more extra studies. We don't need it. They're happening because we have to continue to convince folks. But um, in terms of women's health, there's really, um, really cool policy stuff happening that hopefully are setting the stage for um, continued movement towards opening up the space for reproductive health. Yeah. And Chanel, yeah. there's obviously an inequality between um, you know, predominantly Anglo-white uh, communities and black and brown communities. Uh, what is being done to address those inequalities and how can we make certain that our brown and black communities uh, are receiving the kind of health care that they, they deserve? So I'll say uh, two things, and the doctor uh, might be able to elaborate on this first piece. I think it is the now, and what I'm understanding from my medical profession friends, um, is this increase in, I guess, whole health and cultural, more cultural discussions, the public health piece when you're attending medical school, right? And the continuing education that you receive. So I think there is not I think I know, there is this implicit bias in all of us actually, but implicit bias when you are uh, working with patients as a medical provider, right? So helping uh, you know, young people and those people who are entering into the profession check their bias, right? Understand that they have it because we all do. And I think that will lead us more um, into lowering the instances of um, black and brown women who face, you know, these high mortality rates. Um, I also think, and I actually, I don't know when I'm going to find the time to do it, but I actually uh, certified to be a labor doula. <laughs> oh, I don't know when in my <laughs> life I'm going to actually do that work, but I did it um, because again, it is this need for diversity within these different professions, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
again, when you can relate to someone nine times out of 10, because it's not all of the time, nine times out of 10, you can understand where they are coming from and see some of the non-spoken um, issues that they might be having, right? Because you understand the culture. So I think those are the two ways, like um, injecting more um, diversity into these professions, but also then having conversations as part of the curriculum about the differences um, and needs of different cultures. I love that. Good. Yeah, I can already read the headlines in uh, next year on the post saying that on the uh, the blue line this week, uh, a trained doula delivered a baby uh, <laughs> on the metro. That yeah, you don't know for you never know when it's going to come in handy. You just never That's know. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, let's talk about your faith uh, for just a second. As experts on re- uh, reproductive health and pro-choice, a lot of people take issue with trying to balance faith in those issues. The religious right in this country has unfortunately dominated the conversation when it comes to reproductive health. However, talking to you, I'm getting a sense that things are changing. Now, Jen, you're a member of Catholics for Choice. So I'm going to ask both of you, and I'm going to start with Jen, but how does your faith guide you as an advocate for reproductive health? Thank you for asking that question. And as a matter of personal disclosure, I will say I have a complicated relationship with my faith um, and where I'm at with it as a result of sort of my upbringing. I actually was a pro-life activist well into my 20s. I was holding signs and protesting against the work that I now do. And so I um, actually being a board member for Catholics for Choice has been a really incredible and challenging experience for me to re-enter into that um, faith space. Um, I think what I would say is that there are an incredible number, an incredible number of providers of reproductive health care and abortion care who do so as a matter of faith. They do it as a matter of conscience um, because they see individuals who are needing aid, who are needing justice, who are needing um, that Christ-like um, kneeling at their feet and washing their feet, so to speak, and they're responding to that call. And so that's the first thing that I would say is that many people who do this work are actually driven by those values. Mm -hmm. In addition, we know that people of faith traditions, um, in particular Christian faith traditions, need this care and get this care at the same rate as people who are not of those faith traditions. There is a dichotomy between abortion is only for atheists or abortion is only for people who aren't Christian. People, I pray with people on a daily basis when I'm doing abortion care because they ask me to. we talk about God. They, they ask me what's going to happen. And if I think that they're going to hell, which always breaks my heart. And I usually respond, I don't make those decisions, but I don't believe in any God who would send you to hell for making a decision that is best for you and for your family. And so I actually think that if you try to get away from what the right has done, which is create a polarization between people's faiths and these decisions that are um, made as a result of family values, I think you can realize that they're actually very intertwined and very consistent, frankly, um, in a lot of ways. And that's why a lot of um, providers of faith are able to do that um, and do it because of their faith. Jen, thanks so much for saying that, because, you know, as a pastor for over 20 years and now leading a media organization, uh, dealing with people of faith and non-faith on a routine uh, or in routine, uh, I just I can't tell you how many times I've heard from individuals who have left the church because of the way the church has uh, treated women in particular, whether it's reproductive rights or the inequality of leadership, trying to make them submissive to LGBTQ rights. I mean, it's just what you are saying is where I think a lot of people are right now who grew up in church, who have had a difficult time trying to reconcile these two, uh, but you are proof that it can happen, and you're giving testimony of seeing other people uh, that uh, let their faith guide them in this kind of work. So thank you for sharing that. So, China, how about you? It's interesting you were just saying that, Mitch, about the um, people feeling like they've been driven away by the church. We're actually in the, and I don't know if you 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 are aware of this, but in the Black community, We've been having uh, some uh, celebrities who have been in quite a few, having quite a few issues. Um, and the question is, well, if, if the people at the top 
are experiencing this, these issues, why are they so judgmental of the people who would just the parishioners, right? Mm -hmm. If they're having difficulties in their marriages and with their children and with their sexuality, why is there such this harsh judgment on the parishioners? So there's this hashtag called church hurts mm. uh, that's going around now. Uh, and people are telling their stories about how they've been hurt by the church. All of that said, I don't know if you all remember back in the day, they had the rubber bracelets. Um, and one of the most popular sayings was WWJD. What would Jesus do? Right. Oh yeah. So, Mitch and all, let me tell you something about Jesus. <laughs> Though I'm sure you already know. I'm here for it. Let's go. I believe um, Jesus, God, actually, um, whatever sort of deity uh, you look up to is about love. Mm. I think that's true across religions. I don't look at my, I don't call myself a religious person. I say I'm spiritual um, because I believe religion is something, it's a manifestation of how men of humans, right, then uh, celebrate or engage um, with their with their God. So I consider myself to be spiritual, which is about my relationship with God. And I just actually, to the doctor's point, I can't imagine that when the time comes, God will say, okay, you're not allowed into heaven because you are a man and you had sex with another man. Okay, you're not allowed into heaven because you thought that this was the best thing to do with your body, now speaking of abortion, at the time. I think God is truly graceful and merciful. And whether, let's just say we are wrong about all of these things, abortion included, I just don't see God saying, well, you're all going to hell because you did the wrong thing. And if that is how he is, I need another God. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't want that type of judgment on me personally. So I, I am, I am okay with it because I just know the God that I serve. Mm -hmm. And I think if each of us would understand this, your, a more personal relationship with God, um, then we would know that, you know, all of what religion teaches us about what's good and bad and ugly, God sees as I'm going to look in your heart and the decision that you made based on your intention if that makes sense. It makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. And China, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, Jesus is, is love and this faith of ours is love. I mean, when asked what the greatest commandments of all, that's what he said. Right. Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Period. Mm-hmm. Period. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. what we're called to do. And so, you know, as people of faith, just imagine what it would be like if people of faith actually led the effort in reproductive health, saying, we are going to provide every resource we can for you out of our faith because we love you, because we love you. And we're going to walk beside you and care for you. To me, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus would do now. Yeah. Uh, going back to that bracelet. So thank you both for sharing that. I know that was very personal. And uh, I, I just admire both of you for, for saying what you did. Thank you. Yeah. So I know we've sort of hit on it, um, but China, the pro-choice, pro-life, pro-life, pro-life conversation uh, continues to be one of the most polarizing topics. Um, more than, I mean, which side of the toilet paper you should put outward, more than all these other silly things, like people camp out there. Um, and it's the hill they want to die on. Uh, you know, they won't vote for a school board member if they differ on that opinion. Um, so as someone with well-honed skills and in speaking into policy and politics, how can we have more productive conversations with people who so strongly disagree? So, and this is, this is um, unpopular. I actually, um, though I don't object to, but I personally don't have conversations about abortion. Okay. Um, because culturally, um, especially if you speak to black and brown men, it doesn't go over well. And I will tell you, it's actually not the, about the abortion. As we, and Mitch might be familiar about this. We say that men have one job if you have daughters and that's to keep her off the pole. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, I think for a lot of men specifically, it's not the abortion piece. It's the fact, especially if she's underage, she got pregnant because then you feel, you feel like you failed at your job as a man to protect. 
and provide for her, right? So I'm going all the way back to, for me, when I have these conversations, it's more about culture. It's more about this culture of control. Um, and that's how I get around what I feel is like this science medical piece. Because as the doctor said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having a conversation about science because it's clear. It's, it's crystal clear, like what, what, when it's an embryo and when it's a child, and even if that matters and the, 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 the pill, the, the, the uh, medical, um, the medical pill, it's like all of these things are based in science. So I'm not having a conversation about that. And moreover, because I know for human beings, it's actually not about the science. This is cloaked in your culture of religion and of patriarchy. And when we talk about reproductive justice, white supremacy. So this is actually a culture issue and not an issue about science. So I have conversations with people, particularly black and brown people about control. And because we have a history of other people believing that they control our bodies, it's a good segue into then this conversation about reproductive freedom if you know what I'm talking about, right? Like when we talk about slavery and we talk about, you know, immigration, people believing that they control your body, those cultural conversations is much easier, at least for me to segue into reproductive freedom. I don't even have to have the conversation about the science of it. Giant amen. That's so powerful. Amen, amen, amen. That was a sermon in itself because a lot of these issues that we're dealing with stem from this uh, this patriarchy, this white supremacy, issues that we have just kicked down the road generation after generation after generation. So, man, that that was an important word. Thank you so much for 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 that. Toxic masculinity ruins the party again. Yep, exactly. Well, we know that the pandemic has hit vulnerable populations the hardest, both directly and indirectly. So. Uh, Jen, how has COVID-19 impacted women? Well, there's a different article every single day about how women um, and people who don't identify as men have been impacted by this pandemic more so than men. Um, We know that women and moms have uh, borne a disproportionate amount of the work that has uh, been created by kids being schooled at home, by loss of jobs, by the increased amount of domestic work. We know that um, not only are black and brown um, and indigenous communities being impacted by the actual virus more because of results of systemic racism in healthcare, but we also know that people are unable to get the healthcare that they need. Um, and this, again, to bring it back to reproductive health care, this hit, um, we, as soon as we started shutting states down with COVID, there were governors who were trying to make abortion illegal in their states. They were taking advantage of it to stop people from making time-sensitive, critical decisions about their families and using the pandemic to do that. And so we also know that domestic violence um, is being called a pandemic within a pandemic that um, it's risen an enormous rate. Uh, by an enormous rate. Mental health um, is a massive issue. It was a massive issue prior to the pandemic and it's only only been exacerbated. And so the way that I like to explain it, um, or really sort of uh, an analogy, is that all of our pre-existing issues within our healthcare system have been completely unearthed and now have a giant spotlight on them. These are brand new issues to our system. It's just the pandemic has really kind of lifted the, the lid off of it and shown us how broken our system is and how much needs to be fixed. Hmm. We got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. Before we let you go, Autumn has one final question for both of you. So I'm going to turn it over to her. So our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about today, China, why don't you go first? And then Dr. Villavicencio, uh, what is your more to tell? Oh, um, I remember when I was here last time, I think we were, were we, I don't remember if it was COVID or not, if we were in a different time. Um, yeah, we've only existed during COVID. <laughs> so, oh, we don't know any different. Oh, there was a day we remember long ago that yes. uh, there was no COVID, but we yeah. And a land far, far away. Um, I listen, there's a lot going on. I, I, I am super blessed 
So I know that I'm in a privileged position to, and we were just having this conversation about how COVID impacts women. I'm, I don't have any children, so it's quiet around here. <laughs> um, and, you know, I still have a good job and all of these things still working for me. Um, but I will say, I think the one thing that has impacted me that's similar to others is the, the mental health piece. Mm -hmm. And what I ask folks to do now tie in, you know, your spirituality here is to know that God is good. Um, and he has also provided resources like therapists um, for all of us to get the help that we need. Um, so prayer is real. And I ask that everyone do as much as you can to, to reach out, um, even if you're not sure about there being a higher power. If you're wrong, you'll still be in a good position. Um, but I also want folks to get the help that they need from therapists. It's just a, a lot I see going on in these homes, as the doctor brought up, around domestic violence, around folks now having to live with their molesters, right? Because that's something we're also not talking about. We know that molestation happens, unfortunately, mostly by people we know, right? So I don't, I don't mean to bring down the tone here. I'm saying all of this to say that as much as you can get help, don't feel like you have to be a superman or a superwoman. Reach out to God for guidance, but also as much as you can, reach out um, to a therapist uh, to get the help that you need. Well said. Um, I'm going to add a, a plus one to the therapy uh, recommendation. I think everyone should have a therapist. It's, um, I, I think, an absolute essential in the same way that like some sort of caffeine and some sort of news sources, right? Like you got to have those three things. Um, I, I would say that I oftentimes am the Debbie Downer on any of these conversations because I'm in it every day and I see the my patients coming in and struggling to get the care that they need and to take care of their families. But I do want to say that there is a real grit in the persistence of hope that Americans have um, in the persistence of just being able to live in a world that is as broken as it is. Um, you know, I work in the inner city in DC and really have an incredible experience witnessing the absolute strength of our neighbors and our families. And so um, that is an absolute blessing and an honor and I'm humbled by it every single day. And I like to leave a call of action to anyone that I'm talking to. And so anyone who's listening, if you reach out to, I mean, there's lots of different ways to, to reach out, but reach out to your local um, women's healthcare clinic and tell them, thank you. Those cards mean everything. We have them on our bulletin board in our break room so that we can see that people love us uh, above the you know screams of the protesters outside. If you have money, donate to your local abortion fund or to your local clinic. Um, and if you can, do drives, food drives, diaper drives, all sorts of things. People need help everywhere. And so there's help that you can give. And so that would be my call to action. Thank you, Dr. Jin. Valle Vicencio and China Dickerson, you were superb. Thank you for being guest at Good Faith Weekly this week. Thank you. Well, to our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in once again, and we want to invite you back next week as Autumn and I will catch up and interview some wonderful guests, but probably not as good as the two guests that we had today because they were superb. Until next week, keep living good faith. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y.org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Thank you.